0: Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. As I mentioned on a previous episode, I came back recently from New Orleans, New Orleans where I attended a four-day Freedom Center event called Restoration Weekend. It's an annual three- or four-day getaway for conservatives organized by the Freedom Center, which features speeches and panel discussions and dinner events and even film presentations by some pretty stellar conservative pundits and politicians and thinkers and personalities. One of the panels which I moderated dealt with the topic of national security, and one of the speakers on the panel was Tommy Waller the CEO of the Center for Security Policy, who spoke about terror threats to the United States, including EMPs, or electromagnetic pulses, which can devastate our nation's power grid or huge sections of it. Waller was a riveting speaker, and I actually let him go over the time limit I had kept the other speakers to because he was so interesting and compelling. Not that the other speakers weren't also, but I didn't want to interrupt Tommy at a point that would have broken the spell he had on the audience. Anyway, my first thought afterward was, I have to get this guy in my podcast. He has a lot to share that I think would be of interest to the listeners. So after the weekend, I connected with him, and he responded very enthusiastically, and we set it up. And I think you can see where this is going. He happens to be my guest today, and we have a lot of ground we want to cover, so I'll make these introductory remarks brief and get right to it. Don't touch that dial. I can guarantee you don't want to miss what Tommy Waller has on his mind. And as we go into our rockin' musical interlude, don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already so that you don't miss any of the important conversations we are having here. Be right back. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, is Center for Security Policy President and CEO Tommy Waller. Tommy retired from the Marine Corps Reserves at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. After serving more than two decades on both active duty and in the reserves, he served in an infantry battalion as part of a Marine Expeditionary Unit and as a reconnaissance platoon commander. He attended Officer Candidate School in Quantico, and also completed the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. He served as a key member of the U.S. Air Force's Electromagnetic Defense Task Force, which is something I want to touch on later in our conversation, and that's his expertise with EMPs or electromagnetic pulses as a terror threat. Anyway, Tommy went on to join the Center for Security Policy in 2014. They do great work there in an advisory capacity on national security. I've known their executive director, Frank Gaffney, for many years, Tommy Waller, welcome to the Right Take Podcast.
1: Yeah, Mark, thanks for having me on today.
0: Maybe we could start with you going a little bit more in depth into some of your military background. You seem like the kind of guy for whom the military was a calling, is that right?
1: Yeah, Mark, that's absolutely right. In fact, um, it started at about the age of four when people asked, well, when did you decide to join the Marines? Well, I, I I didn't know about the Marines at first, I just thought it was all the Army, right? And so... I just, uh, I'll never forget um, Christmas time, uh, four years old, I, I got a set of G.I. Joe pajamas. And for me, that was a uniform. And it just, from that, I'm serious, I mean, as it's, it's crazy as it sounds, that that's just how it was. And so I felt called uh, to that sort of service for uh, essentially my entire life. And um, so... Uh, yeah, I'm blessed in, the, in it, that I can continue to serve even outside of the uniform with uh, the Center for Security Policy that you just mentioned. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into all of that with you.
0: Did you have speaking of GI Joe, which actually was kind of a big influence on me as a kid too? I remember the I remember literally the day that the GI Joe came out in the stores, and I could not have been more excited about it. Uh, did you have role models or heroes that you wanted to emulate who sort of steered you in that military direction from an early age?
1: I did. It was it was actually my grandparent. I mean, my, both of my grandfathers. Now, one, I never got to meet. I never got to know him. My mother's father uh, fought in World War II as a U.S. Marine in the Pacific, and he died when she was at a very young age. He died of a stomach ulcer uh, really caused by the sort of stress that he experienced during the war. Uh, my other grandfather served in the U.S. Army Air Corps and then the Air Force, both in World War II and Korea, and those were the two men that I really wanted to emulate. Even though, I, like I said, I never had a chance to meet one of them, I just felt that calling uh, to follow in their footsteps.
0: And what about outside the family? When <clears throat> when you and I talked the other day, the name of General George Patton came up. I forgot how, but but w- would you say he was one of those those figures? It's, it's actually a lot
1: closer to home. If I had a, to tell you who, who my George Patton is, it, it would be a, a gentleman named James Holsey, a retired lieutenant colonel, uh, Marine officer. In fact, uh, right behind me on my uh, on my shelf here is a map case that he gave me uh, when I was commissioned. He commissioned me as a second lieutenant. Uh, lieutenant Colonel Holsey was my high school JROTC unit commander, and the gift he gave me upon commissioning was something that was passed down uh, from a lieutenant in World War II, to a lieutenant in Korea, to him in Vietnam, and then to me to carry in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, for multiple tours. James Halsey would be my patent, <laughs> and so I was really blessed, you know. Yeah, at the age of 14, uh, to be able to, uh, you know, the the Marine Corps JROTC program across the country is probably one of the preeminent, uh, you know, institutions that helps build solid citizens. And, and and for me, it was a blessing to have that ability to participate and learn about leadership in the Marine Corps uh, prior to becoming a real Marine.
0: Tommy, by the time people hear this, we'll be only a day or two away from November the 10th, which happens to be the birthday of the U.S. Marines, uh, formulated all the way back in 1775. Uh, you having been a Marine, uh, and you're not an ex-Marine, there are no ex-Marines, uh, just former Marines, I guess, um, on this occasion, would you care to comment about what the Marines have meant to this country over the last nearly 250 years? Sure. Yeah,
1: this, Mark, this is, um, there'll be both joy and sorrow for me on this Marine birthday. The joy will be that a good buddy of mine I served with in Iraq is getting married uh, on the Marine birthday this Friday, and I'll be uh, attending that wedding of his. And so that'll be a joyful occasion. Um, the sorrowful part is that uh, men like him, uh, men like me are extremely disappointed in the current leadership of the United States Marine Corps. The Corps has offered uh, for the United States uh, uh, its preeminent fighting force. I mean, I think most Americans know that uh, that the Marine Corps can be relied upon, you know, to be the first in uh, and to uh, to really be brutal in our uh, execution of warfare against our enemies. The problem at the moment and why this is also a somber birthday for for guys like me and many others is that the present leadership of the Corps seems not to be able to recognize modern warfare when it comes to the information battle space, the psychological battle space, the, um, really um, what has become a transformation of, of our military in the direction of Marxism, number one, and secondly, with respect to you know how we even fought and frankly lost these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Um, That's part. And finally, I'll just mention you know how the Marine Corps itself, specifically, how it participated in the most recent mandate of the COVID vaccine, which was what ended my career. Um, those are things that make the birthday of the Corps, while it, we ought to celebrate it, we ought to also recognize we're not winning, Mark, and, uh, and we need a changed course.
0: Yeah, you really anticipated uh, one of my next questions was, and that is, uh, where is the U.S. military leadership under the Biden administration taking us? I mean, those in charge now, at, at least at the very top levels, they seem to believe that the two greatest existential threats to our country are whiteness and climate change. that how you see it
1: well i i certainly share the observation you just mentioned that they seem to see it that way right when you look at what the general officers and it's not all generals mark i should say i still know i still know of a, a few of them out there that i would trust um and they're doing the best they can you know uh but by and large yeah when you look at the statements being made uh it is um very concerning right whether when you say climate change you know this major emphasis on all the the Biden administration's you know push like for example electric vehicles right I mean so I got nothing against electric vehicles but if you think for a moment that you know some fleet of electric vehicles is going to help us win our next kinetic war against any adversary that's an unreasonable thought and so it they there are many at the highest levels who consistently take these unreasonable positions Uh, i mean look the the vaccine mandate's another another example uh the i mean we willfully decided not to study the doctrine of sharia after 9 11 when we thousands of americans were killed by jihadis who they won't they don't seem to be willing to listen to what the enemy says uh, and rather propagate these unreasonable um positions, you know, and so, uh, yeah, my confidence in the general officer level leadership, both uniformed and the civilian equivalents, you know, we can't forget there are SES members out there who uh, our tax dollars pay lots of money every year to um, be the, quote, continuity as general officers move in and out of positions, and they are just as responsible for, for the for the really the predicament we're in right now.
0: Yeah, I want to get back to um, what you brought up the, min- the the issue of the vaccines. Uh, I want to get back to that in just a minute, but I don't want to stray too far from your own uh, personal military experience, which I wanted to ask you about. You were deployed in some pretty hairy places like Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Africa, and also Central America too. When I introduced you. Um, Back during the Freedom Center's restoration weekend, I made kind of a a lame joke about how you were deployed in the Caribbean and how that sounded like a pretty vacation-y kind of posting. Uh, But in fact, you weren't just working on your tan there. You were leading a counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism mission in Belize. Is that right?
1: That's right, Mark. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, a privilege to be able to to do that short operation. Um, And it was directed towards trying to stem the flow of narcotics into the United States and address um, at the time, this was, you know, quite a few years ago uh, to address the insecurity of the borders of so many of our um, of our southern, you know, friends and allies. And uh, but, you know, the, the previous deployments before that, the tours, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Africa, those those were arguably much more difficult uh, tours. And and really, you know, the Africa tour is the first time that I truly saw. Uh, I mean, I I, I witnessed. Um, being lied to by politicians in the past. Um, you know, like I, I think you and I both re- can remember when a certain senator running for president, Barack Obama, said there was no such thing as al-Qaeda in Iraq when I had you know, lost um, a third of my platoon, killed in action, and more than half wounded on my third combat tour to al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, right? And, and so I, I've, I've witnessed uh, lies from, from politicians. What was a lot harder to swallow are lies that were that were fed to us within the system. And and that's what I witnessed in in the wake of my deployment to Africa when uh the Benghazi situation happened. I mean I was I was south, I was not in Libya, but I was I was you know south of there and and um immediately understood what had happened based on you know my look at the picture uh the, the intelligence that we had at the time. Uh, I, I knew exactly what had happened. It was a pre-planned attack on September eleventh uh and it was uh, it was not what I was then told later on. You know, um, it, it literally, like the official word I got in a classified briefing was that it was this. You know, the result of this video, um, and and so th- that was the first time I was ever just outright. You know, wow, I, I was just lied to by my own government to the down to the you know um, lowest rank possible. Uh, I was misinformed, and so that that was a big wake up call for me. And unfortunately, what I've seen is is it's gotten catastrophically worse since then. Yeah.
0: Well, well, well. thank you for your service, first of all. And I, you know, a lot of people might think that that sounds like a bit of a cliche, you know, the whole thank you for your service thing. But our military and law enforcement really do put their lives on the line for those of us who, who can't or won't. And that's a really honorable, courageous thing. So thank you, sir. Um, speaking of Afghanistan, Um, what is your, and, and political debacles, uh, what do you think, what is your take on the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan? How do you think that was handled and what do you think it means for our national security?
1: The withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, was just, um, it it was catastrophic, um, you know, we, we had, uh, I mean, think about it for a moment, Mark. How many, how many of these general officers were sitting there in, you know, command centers around the world watching on the flat screen TVs as, as flatbed trucks poured across the Pakistani border to Bagram to cart off all of our military gear, right? Like, what, which general officer at, at any point said, hey, it's not a good idea for us to leave Bagram before we leave anywhere else, before we get our citizens out, right? At what point did any general officer say, hold on a second, you know, I don't think this is a good idea to give the Taliban the list of American citizens. Right? we're talking about people who, who you know, they, their doctrine that they ardently believe says that they have an obligation to kill us. And our government gave them the list of citizens. And today, to this day, we still send money Right. And so I, I don't know of a more significant recent example of um, empowering our enemies than the way that we left Afghanistan. And and for I've got buddies that, you know, were, were doing everything they could, and I will introduce you to one of them, American hero, Chad Robichaux. You should have him on the show, you know, where he, you know, he he actually one of the Marines in my unit went with him to try to help save our allies. And and thankfully, they got 17,000 of our allies, widows and orphans out of that country. And the single biggest obstacle they had at the time was the U.S. government. And meanwhile, the U.S. government brought, I want to say about 400,000 unvetted Afghan people, most of which, when you look back at the videos, it's mostly military-aged men, brought them into this country, right? Uh, And and yet Chad and his team had a way of, of vetting Uh, And they they had to go to other countries to get those people brought out of Afghanistan. And it was a very difficult process getting vetted allies into our country while the Biden administration filled up cargo jet after cargo jet of unvetted, mostly Afghan military-age males, dropping them right into this country. At the same time, as we continue to willfully have our border completely insecure.
0: Uh, Speaking of the border... Let's, let's talk a little bit about the terror threats of our southern border having been thrown open under the Biden administration, just letting in wave after wave, as you put it, of unvetted migrants. Are you concerned uh, that we're setting ourselves up for terror cells inside the country and attacks uh, like the one in Israel on October 7th or going farther back like the one in Mumbai 15 years ago that was so devastating? You think we're setting ourselves up for that kind those kinds of attacks?
1: Unquestionably, Mark. But here, here's the thing to to understand is, uh, yes, there there are. Uh, I mean, since the Biden administration took over, it's roughly on average about the size of the entire United States Marine Corps comes through the southern border every month. Right? It's it's roughly, uh, you know, the Marine Corps has has gone from about 175 to 202,000. It's fluctuated in between those personnel numbers and and that's roughly what we have coming in the country every month and it seems to continue to increase and increase and increase. You're talking about an invasion. All right. So yes, we have there's Chinese nationals, there are military-aged men from every uh adversarial nation out there that are flowing through that border. We have to assume that they are going to be prepared to conduct kinetic attacks. But when you when when most Americans think about, you know, quote sleeper cells in in the country, look they don't have to paraglide into our country. Like when we talk about Hamas, members of Hamas are giving the U.S. government at the highest levels its, their, their, quote, advice on how to counter terrorism. Let me give you an example. Okay, 2021, after January 6th, there was this, quote, extremism stand down. We spent hundreds of hours, I was a commander at the time, Hundreds of man hours were spent in total for the DOD, right? For our unit, obviously, it wasn't hundreds of hours, but it was many hours that we had to spend doing this mandatory training. We had to stop everything else we were doing. That was the number one priority at the time. And you can go back and watch Secretary Lloyd Austin's statements about this. The material that we were given did not have any one of six examples of US Army service members who either killed or planned to kill their fellow service members, right? So 2003, Sergeant Hassan Akbar. 2009, Major Nadal Hassan, Fort Hood, right? The anniversary of which just passed. 2012, PFC Abdo. 2015, you know, Specialist Edmonds. 2018, Sergeant First Class Eric Kang. In 2021, January of 2021, PFC Cole Bridges. That's six examples of jihadis in uniform, either killing or conspiring to kill their fellow service members. Not one, not a single one, was included in that training material about, quote, extremists.
0: Well, why do you think the military embraces such willful ignorance about the ideology behind jihad?
1: So the answer to that question is, I mean, it's, it's a long it's been chronicled our, our organization published a book Steve Coglin is the author of it called catastrophic failure the blindfolding of America in the face of jihad this book is about an inch and a half two inches thick uh, and it has the whole story of it but you ask why and you know ultimately I think it's the same thing it's ultimately the same thing that led to the the, the catastrophic collapse of Afghanistan and it's the same thing that led to the the catastrophe of the vaccine mandate and that is a lack of moral courage. It is, and it is an untethering from the foundations upon which our Republic uh, w- was created and, and the philosophies that our founders promoted. We are untethered from that and specifically untethered from God and, and, and a, a belief in our creator that was, uh, was what kept our military and its leadership uh, in a position where they could win both the moral victories and the physical victories on the battlefield. Right now, Mark, we're losing both every day.
0: Tommy, if you suddenly found yourself appointed chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what what would you do to try to get our military back on track?
1: So as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, you only have so much authority. Um, You can't fire your peers and that's what needs to happen ultimately is that uh, the the most egregious examples the general officers that have publicly embraced the marxist philosophy, those that that have most uh, egregiously broken the law when it comes to the impl- implementation of the vaccine mandate, need to be swiftly investigated they need they need to be immediately fired, and there needs to be a message sent that uh, that they understand the gravity of the failures that they've made. Right, so that, that has to happen at a level higher than the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. That ha- that's where that's why we have uh, a Senate and we have Congress. Right, I mean, like right now, we're we're doing everything we can at the Center for Security Policy to get our senators to understand that they have an opportunity right now and an obligation to stand with Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who is holding up these these uh, um, approvals of general officers, doing it one by one instead of en masse. Uh, because of their, their their willful violation of the law as it relates to abortion. But what it's done is it's helped us identify in the meantime these generals that are supposed to be confirmed, just how much of a problematic record they have. Uh, right. And so ultimately fixing this has to happen even above the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. But if, if I were Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff for a day, um, it would be an immediate uh, out with all of the wasted waste of time, Marxist uh, CRT diversity equity inclusion, it would be based on meritocracy, just like a professional sports team, right? It would be an immediate, an immediate heartfelt apology to the American people for the travesty with which we exited Afghanistan. It would be an admission of that failure, and it would be an admission of the terrible moral injury, and legal and f- physical injury that took place with the vaccine mandate it would be an investigation into dmed the defense medical epidemiological database which the dod is currently uh they've they've done things that lead us to believe that they're covering up the health catastrophe that's happened because of the mandate the list goes on and on and on Uh, but ultimately there are people that we put in office when we when we elect them who are the ones that need to make these types of changes Because the military answers to a civilian authority and it's our civilian authority that needs to that needs to get uh, in action on this right now.
0: In addition to being the birthday of the U.S. Marines, November 10th also happens to be the date that you retired from the military. Speaking of the vaccine mandate, can you tell us what prompted that decision of yours to retire?
1: Yeah, so Mark, the actual, the actual retirement date was um, uh, was was actually not until March. It, what what happened is that that was the one year anniversary of them denying my religious accommodation for the vaccine. Yeah, so I waited a year and tried to continue to serve. Uh, Mark, I was blessed. It could have been so much worse. You know, I, I was taking a stand uh, and, and trying respectfully within the chain of command to do with the processes that were involved and the procedures involved to do my part to try to warn the people above me in the chain of command uh, that they were both in violation of the law and that they were asking me to violate the law to, to um, force subordinates to take an emergency use authorized vaccine and that this was poten- potentially going to be catastrophically harmful to their health. And it could have been a lot worse because they, they could have decided, okay, well, um, let me, let me tell you what happened. They waited until three hours, four hours after my change of command. I was already scheduled to, to pass uh, the command off to another commander. Um, I, I was at the time in charge of the Marine Corps Reserve's only force recon unit. Uh, and so I was already scheduled October 23rd of last year to turn that over. And so when I, or of 2021, when, when I turned it over in, Oct, in October, 2021, uh, just a few hours later, the Marine Corps passed the guidance that any unvaccinated commander would be immediately relieved for cause. And so I was, I was really um, pre- preserved, right? Like they kind of waited until I got out of the way. I don't know how many officers stood up. It must've been a very small number, um, but they sort of waited for me to get out of the way. And so it could have been a lot worse for me. And it was a lot worse for a lot of Marines, especially young Marines. I mean, I know so many young Marines that, I mean, not in my unit, right? Because I protected them as best as I could but in other units who they, they were persecuted, they were kicked out, they weren't allowed any of their belongings. I mean, um, my buddy Chad Robichaux, I was telling you about you, you should interview him and get the story about his son. I mean, like five, six decades of unbroken service to the U.S. Marine Corps by their family was jettisoned enthusiastically by the Marine Corps leadership. And, they, and I should say, Mark, they, they, they sought to inflict moral injury every chance they got. Right. They, they the blanket denial of of many of our religious accommodation requests was on November 10th that was the Marine Corps birthday right the the what they decided to use for the young Marines that they were separating was a was a code in the uniform code of military justice you have to assign a code for why you're separating somebody they didn't choose refusing inoculation they didn't choose um, refusing medical treatment those are two codes that would have been appropriate what they chose was Commission of a serious offense, commission of a serious uh, – that's misconduct, right? I mean that's on par with sex, like sexual assault. That's a misconduct, right, which allows them to strip the educational benefits, to strip the honorable characterization of service. The, the United States Marine Corps leadership at that time was exceptionally enthusiastic about inflicting as many injuries as they could on young service members who tried to stand by their religious beliefs.
0: Wow. Did you at the time, and do you still i guess see that vaccine mandate as a tool mostly for just purging people from the military for political reasons
1: yeah I, I mean look I do respect I respect Lloyd Austin from the perspective that he did an exceptional job in, in in creating the conditions to test marine officers military officers, not just the marine Corps what they did is after you know the day after Pfizer got its Quote, FDA approval for the comirnaty version of their vaccine, which they never really intended to, to make available, if you ask me. The next day, they said, you will, inc- you will inoculate the force with an FDA approved vaccine. And so what that did is it created the conditions where an officer would have to actually look and see, like, can I get a hold of an FDA approved vaccine? The answer was no. Okay, so then that means it's an EUA vaccine, which means that by law, the service members have something called informed consent. They're supposed to be informed of the risks and they have to consent. You can't force them. And so what they did is they gave a lawful order, which is inoculate the force with an FDA-approved vaccine. Look, if it's FDA-approved, then the service members have to take it. The law says that. There's one condition where if it's not FDA-approved, if it's emergency use authorized, the president has the authority. Congress gave president the president the authority years ago in an emergency, to waive the informed consent requirement. And guess what? President Biden never waived the informed consent requirement. That always remained. And Secretary Austin gave a lawful order that was impossible to execute. It was a phenomenal litmus test. And depending on how you look at it, the officer corps in the U.S. military either catastrophically failed, which would be my opinion, or they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in creating the conditions where they would where they would break the law. And, I'm, and look, Mark, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to cast stones to every officer out there. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot that went into it. But I'm just <laughs> it was a purge.
0: Well, now the mandate's been repealed. But are you concerned that the, that the remaining unvaccinated troops uh, or any other service members whose politics might not align with the woke agenda of some at the very top? Are you concerned they could still be targeted and drummed out of the service that would create a military that's more loyal to a left leaning administration?
1: Think about, like, this was a two-step process, Mark. The first was data harvesting. And it's not just the U.S. military. This is the U.S. government writ large and many, many very large corporations. The first thing they did, if you rewind the clock as the vaccines began to be uh, rolled out, they said, hey, look, there's going to be a process. All you got to do is tell us your strongly held religious beliefs. Just write those down for us, right? And that's what we all did across corporate America, across the government, everywhere. That was a data, that was a data harvesting operation, right? And and when 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 you know you mentioned that the vaccine mandate's been rescinded, I mean it was only because Congress forced them to to do that. And yet, not a single human being, not one single human being, who broke the law, who lied to the American people, who misled. I mean, from Anthony Fauci uh, to Lloyd Austin, not a single person has been held accountable. And so, you know, when you think about like our recruiting catastrophe right now, you got to think about like the American people think about like, I'll just give my own example. I'm sitting here trying to continue to serve my country. I have, um, like I said, commanded that really, really phenomenal unit. Uh, 20 years of service at the time had a top secret security clearance, Uh, was trying to find a unit that would take me as an unvaccinated human. Uh, and I needed to get a new identification card. So I went to the, to the base to go get a new identification card last March. And mind you, my family, not me, but my wife and kids, had just gotten back from Disney World. Okay, so like the economy has opened back up. And I'm going to get a new ID card. And I just, I've got my whole family with me for them to get ID cards. They're in their Sunday's best. And I just want to take them on base to see the memorial for the fallen Marines. And I was not allowed access to that base. Right. And and so, you know, as my son was about to to have his picture taken and put his fingers on the biometric scan, I said, no, back away, son, because if they don't trust me to come on this base with my family after everything I've done, then I don't trust them to have your information either. And that's where we are right now for a lot of American families is why why should they trust the people who are in charge right now? Right. And, I, I, look, I don't want to be contributing to, 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 you know, what our enemies would want us to think, but it, it is what it is.
0: I think you're, you strike me as a natural leader kind of a guy and obviously a, a, a passionate patriot. Have you thought about going into politics? Not that I would wish that cesspool on you, but, uh, you know, is has that, is that crossed your mind?
1: I've, I have had people ask me that. I don't want to. I will tell you that right now. Um, it's not something I want to do. What I want to do is what I'm called to do by God. And, you know, I, the job that I have at the Center for Security Policy, I didn't even apply for nine years ago. The day that I finally just gave it up to the Lord— Okay. And it's a great story. We probably don't have time, you know, we don't have time for it in the podcast right now, but
0: no, I actually uh, actually intended to ask you about it.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, well, let's go. I'll just, I'll condense it. You know, my wife and I felt called to leave active duty about halfway through my career and did not know what for, but it was, and it's a, it is a great story. Um, Just all these little things that happened that were just little God things. And, uh, and so, so we did, um and once we left active duty, you know, I was sort of bouncing around trying to figure out what it was that um I was supposed to be doing and 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 the Lord always provided for me, but the day that I finally just- and i and look, I passed up some pretty lucrative job opportunities, but because of like daily devotional readings, I would read and just ask God like, "Hey, is this what you want me to do?" and I'd be moved to not accept certain things and so having passed up all these opportunities and just like having zero job security whatsoever, the finally the day that I just, it was so heavy on my heart. And I read my devotional and it said, essentially, it was like, why are you worried about your future when I've always taken care of you? Put it in my hands. And I felt ashamed, Mark. I, I should have been killed. I, sh- I could have been unemployed. And here I am and I'm complaining to myself, to God. like, And I said, you know what, Lord, you got it now. I had it. And you got it, and I just totally, truly gave it up. And six hours later, I got a call about a job I didn't even apply for at the Center for Security Policy, this nonprofit that I have been working for for the last nine years, and that I've been asked to take over as as of the beginning of this year. So uh, that's a long answer to your to your question about politics. I just want to do what God wants me to do. That's it.
0: No, well, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, no, I, I intended to ask you, it's another question that you anticipated is how you got involved working for the Center for Security Policy. W- what is there, just to clarify for people, what is the mission of the Center for Security Policy and what do you guys do there?
1: Sure. Yeah. Look, I mean, ultimately w- what we do is we provide unconventional expertise, support and leadership that's both far-sighted and highly courageous to save America while we still can. Right so you think about like Frank Gaffney's uh 35 year history when you think about being far sighted and highly courageous right we were getting canceled canceled before canceling was a thing because of the type of of truth telling that he did uh and it's unconventional the type of, of of expertise and support that we provide i mean and that's part of what I was able to do in uniform at times you know, you mentioned earlier uh, the U.S. Air Force Electromagnetic Defense Task Force, or EDTF. Uh, I was able to provide very unconventional expertise and support and leadership uh, to, to, on that one threat vector of EMP in our grid uh, because of the nonprofit I worked for and, and the sort of people that I was mentored by and the experts I was connected to. So uh, that's our mission. And and for thirty five years we've been doing it, and I, I uh, with God's help and blessing, um, we'll we'll do it for another thirty five or more.
0: Yeah, that's great. I know that your work has been focused for a long time on EMPs. Can you uh, can you tell us exactly what an EMP is? Because I think a lot of people have a, a general understanding of it, but might not know how it works or what it's capable of. And could you describe the scenario if we are hit with one here in America?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, so. Uh, when we say EMP, what we're talking about is electromagnetic pulse, right? And generally what we're talking about is is a man-made nuclear EMP attack. And without getting into all the details and you know the, the science behind it, uh, we discovered, both the Americans and the Soviets discovered in the 1960s, that if you detonate a nuclear weapon in the exo-atmosphere, right, so 30 kilometers or higher, it produces this pulse that can really... Really, catastrophically ruin electric infrastructure, and so um, this is something that you know I had heard about it a little bit whenever I was in the military, but never had I really grasped just how terrible um, the 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 consequences of such a thing could be until Frank Frank Gaffney, the founder of our nonprofit, sat me down at his house uh, in Virginia and, and explained. He taught me about EMP, and he said, "Tommy, I need you." Uh, you know, you're just coming on board. I had gotten smart on all the jihad threat, uh, the Sharia. He's like, I need you to step up and, sec- and and lead our nationwide secure the grid coalition, right? And this coalition has these experts for everything from EMP to solar weather, right? Because there's a there's a natural form of EMP um, when the sun produces these big coronal mass ejections. It has a very similar effect. Uh, as, as a nuclear EMP, and cyber experts, experts on physical sabotage, regulatory experts. So that's what I've done for um, really a- almost a decade. And so the consequences of a grid, let's just set aside EMP. It doesn't matter. It could be physical sabotage, which is happening at an alarming rate right now all across the country. Anything that takes the grid down, that takes electricity away from modern civilization, will will cause a major catastrophe. You just try to think about life without electricity, right? And so, um, so it, it's been my privilege to be able to be networked with the, really some of the world's foremost experts. And actually, Mark, I should share with you for your listeners that um, it used to be that I'd have to fly all over the country and do these briefings and all these threats. We now have a documentary um, that we helped produce. Uh, it, it's actually produced by a gentleman named David Tice. I'm sure he'd, he'd love to come on one day and talk about it. It's narrated by Dennis Quaid and it's called Grid Down Power Up. GridDownPowerup.com. You can see a film that lays out all of the threats to the grid and actually allows the, the, the viewer, um, if they hit the participate tab at that website, GridDownPowerup.com, you can actually participate in the policy fight to secure that most critical infrastructure.
0: Uh, how should people be prepared in the event that suddenly you know, the infrastructure is down and our first responders are immobilized or they're overwhelmed and basically the law of the jungle prevails? How, how do people prepare themselves for that? And not just materially, but psychologically, which I think seems to be probably uh, the biggest problem. I mean, we saw what happened across America when people thought that there might be a shortage of toilet paper we saw how crazy things got just with that. But if the, if the infrastructure goes down and suddenly there's no electricity, um, how do people prepare for that kind of psychological impact?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Mark, it's a great question. Because look, uh, the more prepared the people are, the better we're going to weather that storm and the more of a deterrent it is for our adversaries. And so uh, you know, a lot of it, every single little step that you can take to be more prepared will go a long way. So you think about like the the citizens of Moore County, North Carolina last December, you had a physical attack on two substations put 40,000 people without power in a no notice power outage, right? Cuz we're kind of used to power outages where you got a hurricane or a storm coming in, people go and prepare. I think you you provided a great analogy mark with the COVID thing and and like, you know, the rush on grocery stores. Just imagine it being about a hundred times worse than 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 that was with COVID. To the extent like and, and here's the thing is like we have life insurance and car insurance and homeowners insurance. Just just have some food insurance, right? So you start to think about things a little different once you grasp the gravity of how much we depend on electricity. And um, and so as an example, like I, 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 don't have a t- I don't have a ton of money stashed away for my family in the emergency fund. Uh, I don't have a lot to speak of in the stock market, but you know, if, if we lost power, I, I could feed my family for a year because I've invested in, if you want to call it food insurance, right? So it, it, every little step uh, goes a long way. And, uh, and, and it's another thing is just the bottom up approach is, you know, you start with your individual self and your family. Uh, with your neighborhood, your community. Like uh, we have a little homeowner association here. I've, I've consistently, you know, informed neighbors about it. And then we have, you know, you can find groups of people who care about this to, to sort of prepare yourself. But ultimately, we've we've got to secure the infrastructure that we have. Um, and so it's a combination, right? And I'll just tell you this real quick, Mark. One of the smartest men uh, about this issue of EMP and the grid, he, he passed away uh, last Year. His name was Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, and he said something really important one day to me. He said, "Tommy, you know, this dis- these discussions about the grid and EMP, like it really kind of makes people want to run to the frontier, right? Just go be a go be a, a prepper, which is nothing wrong with that, right? I would consider myself in that boat, um, and so." Right. And it's really unfortunate, Mark, because, you know, they ridicule people instead of saying, oh, that's prudent. You know, you've got some food stocked up. You, you know, you've got a, a, a pitcher pump on your well. They, they make fun of you and they call you an apocalyptic prepper. And then, you know, and then when the lights go out, I'm, I can't say how many neighbors I was bringing water to from my pitcher pump on my well and my generator when the last hurricane hit. So but Peter Pry said, Tommy, it makes people want to front, run to the frontier. We have to remember the founders of this country. Had an infinite frontier to run to, and instead they turned and they fought tyranny and they won and we just have to fight the tyranny of inaction when it comes to the to to so many different topics right and so the grid is one of them and and, and we're happy to to have this film now and and I'm happy to go if anybody has a, a lawmaker that they want to be briefed on it I mean that is part of my job you know so
0: oh that's a great point uh, earlier i I had asked you if you you know what you would do if you were uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So I'm going to ask you another big-picture question. If you were given the reins of national security in this country, if you had the power to uh, to adjust our national security issues, what steps would you take to shore that up?
1: Well, I think just one major shift could be, and again, to credit Dr. Peter Pry, this was his concept, to go from mad to sane. So when I say mad, what do I mean? Mutually assured destruction. This was a, a policy during, this, during the Cold War where, you know, okay, we build up our strategic nuclear forces, or all of our nuclear forces. The Soviets are doing the same, and, you know, we both know that if we have nuclear war, uh, we're both going to be destroyed, so neither of us will shoot, you know, nukes at each other. That needs to be replaced with what Peter articulated, strategic assured national existence, sane. Now, you think about what would go into a sane Policy for national security. Well, first of all, it would be having an adequate nuclear deterrent. It would be protecting our critical national infrastructures against such threats as EMP. Strategic assured national existence also includes being rooted in the very foundations that our that that our country was born with, right? in, In 1776, strategic assured national existence means excising from our nation's schools hostile. Ideologies and foreign doctrines, right? It it, it means identifying the networks of both Marxists and Islamists that seek to overthrow our current system, those that are waging what they call civilization jihad, right? Uh, Unless we want that, or, or unless it's acceptable to us that our nation be transformed into something that it wasn't, strategic assured national existence runs the full gambit. Of protecting ourselves from both ideological threats and infrastructure-related threats, and that's exactly what the Center for Security Policy does: is it helps audiences at every level understand what those threats are, and then we provide that that expertise, leadership, and support to counter those threats.
0: Excellent. What's the before I forget? What's the uh, website of Center? Is it CenterForSecurityPolicy dot org?
1: Yes. Uh, an easier one to remember is just Secure Freedom. SecureFreedom.org. It forwards to you know SecureFreedom.org, and, and so people can find, you know, um, I mean, gosh, it's it's almost overwhelming. We've got to kind of t- a relook at our website because it's so we have so much.
0: Okay, Tommy, let me take this in an even bigger picture direction um, than we've talked about. I've often asked this of my guests. Let me get your take on it too. Considering all the fronts on which America is being attacked from without and within, all the enemies that are looking to tear us down. Would you say that America is engaged in spiritual warfare? Is that ultimately what we are facing?
1: Yeah, Mark, absolutely. We're engaged in the sense that we have a spiritual enemy that's engaging us constantly at at a personal level and at a national level, right? And so, look, at the end of the day, all this national security stuff that we worry about doesn't really matter a whole lot if our souls don't end up in eternity in heaven, right? I mean, ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. And so I'll tell you right now, my office right here on my desk sitting right next to me is a leather bound book called The Manual for Spiritual Warfare by a, a gentleman named Dr. Paul Thigpen. I've got icons of St. George slaying the dragon, which is, uh, you know, a representation of jihad. I got a, a statue of St. Michael over my right shoulder like this is totally spiritual warfare. And, and, and we battle it individually. Um, we have to protect our own hearts. Uh, and souls and families and we battle it as a nation and, and ultimately that's what we have to restore is the spirit and the soul of our nation and, and especially our military
0: When you and I talked before on the phone, I was glad to hear of your interest in addressing something that's become a really pressing topic in recent years, and that is the concerning state of masculinity in America today. Uh, Too many boys and young men are adrift now in a culture that treats their masculine nature as something poisonous, you know, toxic masculinity, right? And it tells them they're responsible for misogyny and violence and oppression and a rape culture. They're told that the future is female. They're told that they need to be more vulnerable and, and act more like stereotypical women. I, I've been focused on this for years because I think that reclaiming a masculinity that is rooted in valor and virtue is really the key to getting our country and our civilization back on track. But I want to get your take on it, especially coming from a military background, and also because you're connected to some guys out there who are working on that front to rescue a whole generation of boys and young men who are in trouble. Uh, you want to give me your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, if we want to model for for true masculinity, it's St. Joseph. It's the foster father of Jesus, right? I mean, it's a guy who sacrificed so much. You think about what he had to do uh, to to protect Christ, um, the discipline he had to have as a man, Right. Um, when he's, he's married to the mother of God, right? So that's, that's an example. But, you know, there's a quote that comes to mind. I'm sure, you know, your listeners have probably seen it before. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. We have been blessed with the greatest generation providing for us good times. And that's created a lot of weak men. And what you just mentioned a minute ago is that society continues to try to emasculate men. And unfortunately, on the spiritual side, people don't realize just how strong of an example we have in Jesus and in, in, in St. Joseph and so many different saints. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's critically important that we regain that sense of masculinity and that we understand it actually comes from God. He made us this way. He made us to fight. He made men to fight for what is good and yes, so there's when it comes to the warriors that have suffered so much in battle against our nation's enemies, I mean 22 is the is the number right now on average of veterans and service members combined who who commit suicide every day. That's terrible. That's that is an epidemic and it stems from the spiritual battle. And uh and yeah, look, there there's two organizations out there when it comes to the restoration of the warrior spirit and soul. Uh, and that is Mighty Oaks Foundation. I told you before about Chad Robichaux and, and the Afghanistan rescues. I absolutely recommend you get him on. And I'll tell you that the, the one that I went through, Operation Restored Warrior, ORW, uh, with a gentleman named Paul Lavelle, uh, based off of a book uh, called Wild at Heart, authored by John Eldridge, that talks about masculinity. And so I think there's your your listeners would probably love to hear from both of those gentlemen, uh, because they're both doing important work in helping warriors understand, yeah, hey, guess what? God made you to fight, and your hearts may have been wounded in that, and your nation may not appreciate it, but you're in a spiritual battle. And first and foremost, we have to restore our soul and spirit and, and tether it to God. Uh, and then that, you know, we work that from the bottom up, and it, and it, and it allows us to, to have the ability to then be strong again and create the good times uh, for the rest of the the, the future generations.
0: Yeah, I'd love to get both those guys on, and I'm familiar with that book, Wild at Heart, uh, by John Eldridge. Why do you think that Christian mentorship is so necessary to this whole process of raising good men? Well, its
1: I mean, you don't learn—you uh, have to learn from somewhere, right? So you're either going to have the world, which we know Satan uh, is—it's his domain. So the, the, either the world is going to mentor our youth and our young men, or real men are going to mentor them, and and you know that there's another Promise Keepers is another one, right? I, there's another gentleman I like to introduce to Ken Harrison, who's who's the CEO of Promise Keepers. You want we'll to talk about a man's man? Um, that that's another great example of an organization meant to help men being led by a manly man who is tethered to Christ, right, to God. And so, uh, yeah, that's another guy. I got all kind of good men to introduce you to.
0: No, that's great. And Promise Keepers, just to clarify for people, it's not the same as Oath Keepers. They're they're two separate, distinct kind of organizations, right? What well, What is Promise Keepers about?
1: Yeah, so uh, Promise Keepers it, it, they provide leadership and guidance. Um, you know, basically for men uh, to be able to uh, understand their faith. Um, it, it's uh, I just I know Ken Harrison is a CEO as a guy who I mean it's a whole other story. You should interview him. It was at LAPD. Um, you know cop he 's a very successful businessman in real estate, but i 've heard him speak before and and the organization um it exists for the type of mentorship that you 're talking about They bring together godly men uh trying to build a movement that spans generations i mean we don't we don 't get to the next generation without the type of mentorship you 're talking about, and so that 's just another another one of those areas where like okay if you 're a military veteran. And you, you know you need some of that spiritual warfare restoration. You got Mighty Oaks. You got ORW. If you're not, if you're any other man out there, promise keepers, right? And there's so many. I mean, there's so many good. I I got an app on my phone called Exodus ninety, phenomenal program. If you're if you're Catholic, it's uh, and even if you're not, it you know just daily prayer and different types of disciplines and sacrifices, right? All of us need that as men. And so that there's abundant tools out there and I'd be happy to to connect you at least to the ones I know about cuz they help me every day. I couldn't do it without God and without all of the people in between him and me.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. There are a lot of what I would call masculinity gurus out there today, like the extraordinarily influential and controversial Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate is a huge online influencer for millions of alienated young men and boys who are seduced by his extravagant lifestyle, his fleet of supercars, uh, his expensive cigars and watches, he got wealthy from this lucrative pornographic webcam business and um, related pyramid schemes that he ran out of Romania, including his online Hustlers University, which is a program that teaches young men basically how to imitate his own success exploiting women. What do you, would you say is wrong with that kind of messaging?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know the man. It sounds like what you're describing. Him. It, what you're essentially describing is the difference between King Herod and Joseph, right? I mean, come on, like one of them sacrificed everything and, and uh, was humble and was prudent and, you know, probably didn't have a whole lot to show in his humble little, you know, workshop. But he guarded the Son of God. And I, you know, and for eternity, he will, he will be in, in, a, in a spot. Where's Herod in eternity? Probably not the same spot, right? So I can't pass judgment on Mr. Tate or anybody else, but I just, uh, you know, the single biggest thing that helps us avoid um, the spiritual attacks of our enemy is humility, right? Pride is the avenue through which. And so I just, you know, um, try everything I can to make sure that if if possible that I, I am not prideful. And so it just kind of sounds like what you're describing has a lot to do with pride. It's, and that's different than courage, right? It's different than, um, I mean, you, you can be courageous and humble at the same time. And so that's what we need.
0: Great. That, excellent. That's a brilliant answer. Uh, Tommy, I'd love to keep talking to you about this. I try to keep the show to a digestible length, but and uh, we could go on and on about this topic. So I'm going to have to have you back, uh, maybe, maybe in combination with some of the other Uh, gentlemen that you mentioned on this topic. Tommy Waller, thanks so much for your time and insights today. Keep up the good work and come back anytime.
1: Will do, Mark. Thanks for having me on and, and keep up the good work on your end too, sir.
0: Listeners, we've been talking to Tommy Waller, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.